So that means we're good. All right. Good morning. Again. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 3. As we are continuing to look at the story of the early church. The early, early church. The really early, early church. Chapter 3. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. And you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and faith that comes through him and has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed to you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among your own people, and you must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring will all peoples on earth be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who had heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to be about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. 
Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see that the man who had been healed, since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign, and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judge. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you have made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but they had shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there, was no, that there were no needy persons among them. For, for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put them at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. The word of the Lord. So here we have this description of the early church, and we're immediately following the description of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church at Pentecost. And this is the church really operating in power. And there's, there's a popular saying, and um, it's... it's 
this, this, uh, these two chapters are kind of going to speak to that. There's a popular saying that talk is cheap. Um, anybody can say anything, but people want to see something behind it. One of the things I love about Scripture and, and I love about the Bible is that it, at many levels, it just the little details line up so well with no, what's, known as, what's known from history. And being a historian, I gravitate to that. This is not a once-upon-a-time story. This is a story that interacts with history as we know it. And that gives it a credibility that maybe it's something that's just a system of philosophy doesn't have. And this chapter is just riddled with things like that. Anytime you read scripture, it's a fair statement to say, there's a lot going on here. And I say that a lot. But as usual, there's a lot going on here. It starts with this story of Peter and John going up to the temple for prayer. Now this is interesting because they're still observing Jewish times of prayer. But it doesn't say they're going up to the temple for sacrifice. They're not going up there for the sacrifice. They're going up there for the times of prayer. And there's a reason for that. Because for believers, the last sacrifice that needed to be made has been made. And there's a little kind of hint of that in there. They're going up for, at one of the regular hours of prayer. And if you've got, like me, the, uh, the NIV or even the new... Uh, the NRSV, it'll say, you know, at three in the afternoon. Other translations will say the ninth hour. We know from Matthew's account of the crucifixion that this is the time of day where Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my soul, and passed. So there's a little, there's kind of a little note here that as they're going to the temple, they are being faithful Jews, but there's also something new here. They're not going up for sacrifice. They're going up for prayer. And they meet a beggar. This would be very, very normal at this time of the world. This is, there's no social security. There's no aid to people who are disadvantaged at this time. All they can depend on is the generosity of passers-by. Um, a lot of the things we take for granted today, a lot of the way the world has changed and looks after people in this situations, these situations. It actually comes from the church. Um, in the Roman world, you know, if you were a cripple, man, you're a cripple, who cares? Um, and it's, it's actually only the coming of the church that, that transforms society and gives us this idea that everybody is made in God's image. Everybody has value. So one of the reasons this is foreign to us, this experience, is... Um, because of the success of the church, although in, in every society you're always going to find those disadvantaged, but it would have been very common then. And one of the major ways you showed you were a good Jew at that time was through charity. Through it. But everybody liked to be seen giving. You know, it's like, here I am, I'm giving my alms to this poor man. Um, which, if you're the beggar, I mean, that's a good thing because people are going to going to at least meet your needs. So he's, he's in a public place. He's by a gate to the temple where everyone will pass by so that people heading up to worship can uh, kind of extend their worship by giving something to him. Here come Peter and John. 
And they look, there's just a little throwaway line, and it's not a throwaway line. There are no throwaway lines in Scripture, but we can miss it. They looked straight at him, as did John. What must that have been like to the beggar? Because probably even the people that are giving him money are like here, and they're maybe more concerned with the act of giving the money than actually the beggar that they're giving money to. But here, Peter and John look at him. They look straight at him. They're not looking past him. They're looking at God. Or they're looking at somebody in God's image, at least. He will be a child of God in a second. But, uh, and Peter says, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Was expecting to get something from them, but what he got was probably not what he expected. This isn't somebody who had an accident. This is a guy that, as we he never walk on And Peter tells him, he's like, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have, I'm going to give to you. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Cool. The temple authority. And it was, that is a sign of shame. But we see that around and remember that everybody in his name, but walk. And he takes the beggar's hand. And as soon as he takes the beggar's hand, his feet and We kind of have a good idea of to happening. And um says it relate. So there's this this physical healing, this guy never who never walked before. And he began to walk and immediately he goes with them. He doesn't just go, hey, I'm healed, cool, goes away. He's like, oh, wow, something's going on here. And he follows them into the temple, praising. And everybody can see the power of a transformed life. And it immediately attracts the crowd. They're like, hey, we know this guy. Begging here all these years. Some of them were cynical. Maybe like, was this guy faking? Probably a lot of them want to see what's happened, and it gives Peter the opportunity they know. He's conspired. You rejected. You love asked for a murder. You for Barabbas to be released instead of this guy because you were looking for one kind of a Messiah. Did it in ignorance, but Fact is, the people had been looking for a king to come in, kick out the Romans, and reestablish. And when they realized that wasn't the type of Messiah Jesus was, they're like, "Well, we're done with him. You know, put him to death and give us a revolutionary." Because those guys are. But 
but they didn't know that that was God's anointed. And so now Peter proclaims to them. And they get another 2,000 converts because it's hard to deny what's happened right before their lives, right before their eyes. What's really interesting is priests with a miraculous work of God right in front of their eyes conflicts with their theology. Now there's a subtext here. The Jews of Jerusalem at this time weren't unified. There were different groups that, that really did not like each other. And much like one of the things, Herod and Pilate couldn't stand each other, but they became friends over executing Jesus. Well, you had the two major groups in Jerusalem would be the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the Sadducees were the party of the temple, the high priest. And the Pharisees were kind of the, the more common people, but they were the, the party of law and everything. But the only thing that had enabled them to work together was their hatred of the, the way and the followers of the way in Jesus. And now a split is opening up. Because what's worrying the Sadducees is not that they healed somebody. It's not even that they're preaching. It's not even really that they're preaching about Jesus. What really scares them is that they're talking about the resurrection from the dead. And one of the big differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees is the Sadducees thought this, this life is all there is. If God's going to bless you, he's going to do it in this life. And when you die, you're dead and that's it. And the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and they believed in the life to come. And all the temple rulers can see is how this disturbance affects their political situation, their theological situation. They're, they're not concerned with the power of God on display. They're concerned with how it upsets the cart of the balance of power that exists at this time, which is ex identically the same problem they had with Jesus. They were like, you know, if this guy keeps preaching, you know, it's going to stir up take away what power we have. They're not concerned with the power of God on display. They're concerned with how the events going on play into their politics. And so they put Peter and they put Peter and John into captivity and then they bring them out the next day and ask them uh, ask them to explain themselves and Peter's filled with the spirit again. There's kind of been this notion in church history, um, there's various camps about regarding the Holy Spirit. There are the day that the last apostle died, the Holy Spirit quit acting in the world. And then, active, uh, but they kind of tie filling a one-time experience. They'll talk about, you know, are you baptized in the Spirit? Are you baptized? Like it's this one-time thing. But what I sure is that the Spirit is constantly coming on us when we're in times when we we to reach into the situation and answer the need at hand. He again preaches to him. And he says, look, you guys rejected this stone. This didn't look like what you were expecting. How often is that us? You know, we pray to God and we, man, we have in our heads what that answer to our prayer is. And it can be very disconcerting when God, who knows all things and knows the best things, answers that prayer in a different way. 
And sometimes we can still be praying, you know. God, you know. And God's like, um, over here, over here, over here. And right there. Well, that's the situation that, that the Jews were in. You know, where's this king? You know, this guy can't be it. And God says, no, that is, that's the cornerstone. That is the foundation of new creation. Everything new I'm doing, everything I promised I would do when I started with Abraham to make this, it finds its fullness in, fullness in him, and you rejected him. Now, that works according to God's plan, but that is so often the way things work. Now, one of the really cool things here is that immediately when people do this, Peter and John say, wasn't us. This, this, this was done by Christ. There were a lot of messiahs at this time in Israel. There were always new ruler, new people cropping up in the desert claiming to be the messiah. This, you know, I'm God's messiah, I'm God's messiah. And usually they would flourish for a little bit and then they would be killed, either by the Romans or by somebody else. They'd be killed. And what would almost always happen is somebody else in the movement, usually a family member of this Messiah figure, would, everybody would go, oh, we, we had it almost right, but it was actually this guy. And so power and authority would transfer to that person. Um, that, that's a very common established pattern. One of the unique things about the early church is that when Jesus was executed, if they'd just been another movement, another messianic movement like all the others, they would have gone, this brother James and indeed James becomes one of the leaders of the church but they never say oh this is the Messiah they never say oh the power is here now Peter and John make it clear they say oh nope that wasn't us this this Jesus the, the one you crucified God raised him he is still alive he is still active this is his power we're just his representatives and that's really cool because it it fits in with the history of the period in a way that's utterly different from everything around it. And at the end, we have this lovely section where the believers pray, and they just say, this is the way the world is now. We're going to be persecuted because of this. People are going to come against this message. God, give us boldness. And God answers. And he pours his Holy Spirit on them again. And as we're going to see, there's no stopping the church. I mean, when persecution starts, all it does is it serves to spread the church far, farther. There's actually, uh, in the second century, there's a, a Roman writer named Tertullian, a lawyer. And he'll, he'll put it this way, you know, when he talks about persecution, he says, hey, you know, persecute us if you want. But the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You may have heard that before. And from this point on, with God's Holy Spirit empowering, anytime the church is challenged, it, it, it makes it grow. And the people can see it. that They're bringing in constantly. God is adding to the number of the people that are being saved because they can see there's something different. They can see, for one thing, a lame person who was born lame who's now walking. That's, that's pretty hard to deny. I mean, that's... What the Sanhedrin comes down to is like, well, we can't, you know, everybody knows this guy was crippled. We can't say it didn't happen. You know, the other thing they don't do is they don't challenge, even though they're worried that these guys are preaching the, re preaching the resurrection of the dead, they don't challenge that statement that God raised Jesus from the dead. If this really had been 
just people making the best out of a bad situation, which is what a lot of modern scholars want to say. They say, oh, well, they meant that Jesus was raised in a spiritual sense or something. If, if that was really the case, surely right now the high priest of the Sanhedrin would go, well, no, because, you know, his body's over there. Or, yeah, you guys just stole the body. We all know that. But they don't even try and challenge it. They just go, okay, well, don't, don't talk about this anymore. You don't, you know which is utterly baffling. Here you are dedicated to the temple and the glory of God and God heals somebody and you're like, don't tell anybody about that. You know, it's no more of that. No more of that healing. We don't, we don't do that here. We don't do healing here. The church perseveres and they're united in the spirit and they have a lifestyle that immediately sets them apart from the rest of the world. There is power in the preaching of the word. There is power in the proclamation of the gospel. There is also power in the demonstration of the gospel. Anybody can say anything. We live in a, we live in a world now where everybody has a megaphone on the internet. And anybody can say anything. And you are left to sift through competing statements. But it's very, very hard to deny the power of a changed life. So I'm just going to look at two, two more scriptures. Uh, first from 2 Peter, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to your goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then from Paul in Galatians, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. We should always, you know, not artificially, but part of the walk with Christ should be we look different from the world. When we're confronted by trials and tribulations and challenges in the world, as people of Christ, we should react differently than the people around us. It should be evident to them. Sometimes I, I look at my own life and I'm like, well, God, you know, have, sometimes it's difficult to me, for me to see in my own life if God is transforming me. Um, and then I'll talk to people who have known me a long, long time. And I'll talk to friends, you know, back home in Texas who knew me before I came to faith. And they'll be like, oh, no. <laughs> you can really tell that God did something in your life. And to which I think, man, I must have really been a jerk. <laughs> but, um, you know, our experience of walking close with Christ should always be that we look different from the world, and we should celebrate that. You know, I look at the lame man healed, and he is jumping and praising God. When you've been walking with the Lord for a really long time, sometimes you can lose the, the newness of, of that transformation, and it's worthwhile to just come back to the Word and come back to what God has done in our own lives and our own testimony and just get happy about it. And to remember what just the, just the changing of one soul's destiny 
is a miracle that deserves celebration and praising God. So in conclusion, I'd just like to say, we need to always, yes, be proclaiming the truth with boldness and not be afraid of what people come against us, but we should also be displaying the change God has made in us and, and what, how we're different because he's touched our lives. Because truth is, every one of us, if God's touched your life, he has changed your life and you have something to be grateful about, something to leap about, and something to praise God in the temple about. Well, we're in this because of what Christ did at the cross. And so every week, we remember that. So let's come to communion.